This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Peoples and Things, a podcast about human life with technology. I'm your host, Lee Vinsel, an associate professor of science, technology, and society at Virginia Tech. You can reach me with comments and suggestions at leevinsel at gmail.com or on Twitter at STS underscore news. I would love to hear from you. in a scientific society. We have put our trust in scientists and other experts and devalued the advice of other wise people in our lives. The scientific worldview that we have adopted leads us to view the world and people around us in instrumental terms, and we have come to treat people as things. Our scientific society has alienated us from our own human natures and leads us to dehumanize others. Proponents of science celebrate its supposed objectivity and neutrality, but really this just masks science's attachment to Eurocentric and patriarchal values. In the end, our embrace of science has corrupted our culture and our very selves. But is anything I just said true? And how would we know if it is? In Science Under Fire, Challenges to Scientific Authority in Modern America, the historian Andrew Jewett examines ideas like the ones I just listed and how they developed over the course of the 20th century. His story highlights how a whole variety of thinkers began reacting to 
and rejecting scientific ideals that emerged in the earliest decades of that century. Perhaps what is most interesting about his account is how criticisms that science was corrupting our values arose from nearly every quarter of American culture, from the religious and the secular, from the left and the right, from humanities professors to politicians to about any kind of public intellectual or thinker or talker that you can possibly imagine. I think Andy's history is really fascinating, and I think so far it has been underappreciated. Few books I've read in the past few years have so changed the way I look at things around me, including how I see arguments about science and expertise, even how I read things in the news. Now, in later episodes, we're going to have guests on who make exactly these kinds of criticisms of science and technology. But I think one really neat thing about Andy's book, which, by the way, is primarily focused on interpreting and understanding where critics of science are coming from, is the way he gently prods the very assumptions that undergird criticisms of this sort. First and foremost, he doesn't think that in any meaningful sense we live in a scientific culture, and we might put that in quotation marks. But second, and importantly, I think, he demonstrates the way that criticisms of and debates around science and technology get lodged at the level of vague and unhelpful generalizations around terms like science, scientism, technology, rationalism, the Enlightenment, the humanities, humanism, religion, faith, irrationality, the West, modernity, and the list goes on. He suggests that we leave these generalities behind and come back to the ground of specific examples, which if we examine them one by one, we'll find that they contain more differences than similarities. Do we live in any real sense in a scientific culture? We might ask this question especially at this very moment when nearly 45% of Americans are unvaccinated and are apparently rejecting ever getting a vaccine. I hope you enjoy this interview with Andy Jewett about his new book, Science Under Fire. I know I enjoyed doing it. Get excited. So, Andy, thanks so much for coming on to talk to me today. Thanks for having me. Science Under Fire is a really deep book about how people in the U.S. have become skeptical about scientific authority since the early 20th century. Mm -hmm. So how did you come to write this book? Well, I started graduate school during the science wars of the 1990s when there was, you know, all sorts of polemics on uh, many different sides about the meaning of science in our culture. And... Uh, really struck me at the time that both of the sides in those conflicts, which you know had a lot to do with whether science was socially constructed and what that meant about our society, um, were taking for granted certain kinds of assumptions about the meaning of science and about its relation to our culture. Uh, one being that science was this kind of rigidly, you know, rigorously value-neutral form of knowledge, and then the other that it served as a kind of cultural keynote uh, to the modern world in a sense, right? That's in some way that all of the things we see around us kind of hang on science in some sense. Um, and I was 
skeptical in certain ways about both of those uh, assumptions. Um, and so I've written now two books that uh, sort of interrogate those and try to sort of get a more complicated picture of how folks have thought about science, uh, you know, mainly in the 20th century United States. And the first book, uh, as you know, focuses more on this sort of assertion of value neutrality. And this newer book is more about uh, these claims about science being the source of our culture in a sense, right? And so what I'm tracking really is the history of the idea that we live in a scientific culture, you know, mm -hmm. particularly in the United States, but sort of in the modern world generally. Sometimes this is associated with the concept of modernity, sometimes it's not. Um, but I argued that in the 1920s, there's a shift from, you know, some folks arguing that science would be a dangerous cultural guide to arguing that it is in fact here. It is in fact setting the tone for our daily lives. It has determined mm -hmm. how we think about ourselves and others. And so it's this intersection of science and conceptions of human behavior uh, that interests me the most. Mm -hmm. I thought it might be uh, help listeners to have a really concrete example of the kinds of debates yeah. that pop up. Right. So, I mean, you talked about the science wars. That's one place we could go. But in your conclusion, you discuss a graduation speech that the writer and editor Leon Wieseltier gave mm -hmm. at Brandeis in 2013. Yep. He said, among other things, that society had come to be dominated by instrumental reason, including mm -hmm. the twin imperialisms of science and technology. Right. And then the psychologist Steven Pinker replied that, you know, only through science could we come to know ourselves and all mm -hmm. these things. So mm -hmm. you want to say a bit about that case and how you see it kind of pulling out some of the big the themes of your book? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a case where Wieseltier presents, he says, you humanities students are the resistance, right? I mean, in some way, dividing the world up into these sort of disciplinary terms, in a sense. Uh, and I think that's a very characteristic kind of argument that comes out of the 20th century, uh, has a lot to do with struggles around how education is going to be oriented, how professional authority is going to be divided up. Um, and those are characteristically broad sweeping kinds of claims there yeah. have been other versions of this sort of critique that have been more uh, specific and more particular uh, but, but this is actually the style that's most common in the middle of the 20th century uh, these sort of and, and to some extent becomes increasingly common again in the era of the science wars when we get these bigger and bigger kinds of histories of the modern world that are predicated on uh, the assertion that certain sources of authority have sort of come to dominate. Um, so this this is very much continuous with what you see in the 1950s, for example. I suggest mm -hmm. that there's a kind of uh, national reckoning with the cultural meanings of science in the wake of World War II. We see it as a golden age of American science with the nuclear physicists and so forth and all the scientists and the advertisements. Um, but there's a tremendous undercurrent of anxiety, too, about what science is doing to our self-understanding. And you yeah. see that very much coming out in this uh, tussle between Wieseltier and, and Pinker, uh, you know, saying that we must follow this sort of style of intellectual work in order to yeah. be able to sustain human relations, really. And otherwise, the social order, our world as we know it, will fall apart. Yeah. And you you see counterparts to the Pinker response. I mean, if anything, Pinker's doubled yeah. down and tripled down on this argument since of then, course, right? Yeah, over the years. Yeah, and that's not something I track with any consistency through the book, except insofar as I suggest that some of the most extravagant claims on behalf of scientific authority have been fodder for the critics. So I talk mm -hmm. to some extent about um, 
about B.F. Skinner, for example, in, the, in his you know novel Walden II, and then some of his subsequent debates with Carl Rogers and people like that. But uh, just like John Dewey in an earlier age, Skinner becomes this kind of perceived avatar of a scientific culture. I mean, he, yeah. if you look at him on the sort of spectrum of what scientific thinkers believe about the world he's fairly extreme um but he comes that that comes to be taken as uh the kind of deep inner meaning of what a scientific culture would look like is this Mm -hmm. you know world beyond freedom and dignity as he later titles a book right a world in which there really is no free will everything is conditioned you know uh and so there's this uh you know brave new world is another kind of hit point aldous huxley's earlier novel is constantly under discussion in the post-war period as it is again today um but these become these sort of nightmare visions of what a scientific culture might look like if it's sort of taken to its fullest um and so you know again i'm not tracking the arguments on the sort of pinker side as much Mm -hmm. um but they do come into the story on occasion as you know as grist for this kind of mill yeah I was struck, you know, I think the the first chapter on like the 20s um, and the early part of the 20th century, there's a lot of optimism there that kind of, uh, right? Um, And I just wonder, you know, where do you think that that optimism came? And John Dewey is an important character in the story, I think is a nice kind of symbol of that optimism of that time. Yeah. Yeah, I discuss in that chapter in the 20s a number of versions of what I call a program of mental modernization. Uh, and that's just you know riffing on the concept of modernity itself, but a number of kinds of cultural programs that again you know as with Skinner after World War II, in the twenties these were the kinds of nightmare visions that people seized upon and as uh, thinking about what a scientific culture uh, was going to look like. Um, and there are a number of different versions. There's one associated with Bertrand Russell that has to do with a kind of uh, existential and in, in a sense kind of understanding of the universe as uh, sort of impervious to human meanings, that we have free will, we can act as we choose, but that uh, there's no cosmic support for any of our values whatsoever. And so Bertrand Russell, you know, as also a notorious atheist, uh, right. is, you know, a, one of these sort of flashpoints around which this controversy revolves. I talk about John B. Watson's behaviorism and his, you know, at least operational denial of concepts like soul and mind, and again, this assertion of conditioning as the source of human behavior. I talk about how many folks saw parallels between Watson and Freud. There's, of course, a huge vogue of Freudianism. It's not clear how deep necessarily, but it's sort of all over the place in 1920s popular culture. And again, often seen by critics as this view that reduces our supposedly rational and moral behavior to some kind of, you know, subterranean instinct, some sort of quasi-material force or something like that and then there's Dewey and I and I point out there that Dewey's program is specifically designed to attack what he sees as weaknesses and these other cultural renderings of what science means he's specifically insisting on the you know not only the reality of free will but the reality of human purposes the reality yeah. of values as guides to action all of these things embedding them in the natural world um, but because of that naturalistic bent because he says there is no supernatural realm uh critics are constantly sort of collapsing his theory into these others suggesting that he too is saying we're just mere machines or animals and of course he is uh, a kind of arch secularist in his day and arguably a liberal protestant in other ways or a humanist um 
and his influence on education is an important part of structuring those views of him as this great cultural danger. Uh, but yeah, there's a tremendous amount of optimism behind all of these programs in the 1920s. Yeah. And the critics on the other side, you know, who are the main focus of the book, come in and say, well, this, you know, this shows us that a scientific culture has emerged, right? That right. they start drawing lines between the writings of a Freud or a Watson or a Dewey or a Russell um, to changes in ed uh, education, to changes in consumption patterns, the sort of rise of sort of middle class consumerism, suburbanization, the kind of keeping up with the Joneses mentality. Uh, they sort of draw some lines there and say that this is, you know, this is the result of a scientific way of thinking about ourselves and others about human behavior. Mm hmm. Um, I think the middle chapters of your book just do such a wonderful job showing how the critique of science comes from all these different constituencies, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and these kind of different groups rise up to criticize science for often like different and, and maybe even incompatible reasons for Absolutely. a lot of times, yeah. right? Yeah. So what are some of the groups that you see as really important uh, in this story and, and what flaws did they see in scientific culture? Yeah, I argue there that you can... You can really find this kind of critique in the middle decades of the 20th century coming from just about everywhere. If yeah. you imagine a political spectrum, if you imagine a theological spectrum, you can find people with just about every set of commitments making an argument like this. And they often sound remarkably similar, as you can see from reading through the book, because they operate at such a high level of generality, Yeah. Uh, saying that you know science has sort of destroyed our conventional self-understanding. It's a kind of... Uh, you know, uh, a sort of Jeremiah in a sense, right? As there was a moment before when we really understood ourselves, or there was a very long era, you know, going back in history, when we really understood ourselves, and now science has come in and, and sort of ruined that self-understanding. And we need to go back to what came before. And then there are just a whole bunch of different programs slotted in as to what came before, right? What was it that right. sustained our view of ourselves as moral actors as having free will these are the, some of the biggest themes in the middle of the 20th century as uh, you know uh, uh, not just um, material to be manipulated by totalitarians or by social engineers right um, yeah. and so you see that among religious leaders of all different kinds you know I'm, and I'm specifically trying to sort of broaden the horizon beyond the sort of usual circle of conservative evangelicals fundamentalists yeah. Pentecostals and so forth and to try to say, you see this throughout the kind of liberal Protestant establishment. You see it among, you know, uh, capital C conservative Jews, you know, Jewish leaders. You see it, uh, you see it among many Catholic leaders. Uh, you see it among people we consider religious modernists. Even, you know, even back in the 1920s, a religious modernist like Shaler Matthews is criticizing this kind of scientific uh, view of the world. Yeah. So religious leaders of all stripes, I talk about... Um, professional sort of academic humanity scholars uh, of many different kinds, a little more divided, but you see a lot of folks arguing that the humanities are what upholds yeah. our, our sort of traditional understanding of the human person as a moral actor. Uh, political conservatives, I spend a good de yep. deal of time on all of the different varieties of conservatism that constitute the new right in the 1950s, as folks like William F. Buckley and Russell Kirk are sort of rehabilitating conservatism. Uh, this strand of criticism of the modern social sciences and social engineering gets wrapped up with the New Deal uh, in the minds of m virtually all different kinds of conservatives mm -hmm. uh, and is an important part of the glue that sort of holds 
holds the inversion and conservative movement together alongside anti-communism and this sort of, you know, more conventionally political critique of the New Deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I talk about mainstream liberals. I talk about uh, sort of dissidents within the social sciences themselves who often start to resist the label social science and want to call themselves a kind of humanists. Like the, yeah. uh, you know, the anthropologist Alfred Krober is one who says, you know, I'm not a social scientist, right? Or later on, someone like a C. Wright Mills, a kind of conduit for these arguments into the new left, um, saying that, you know, there is, you know, sort of disavowing the idea that there should be a kind of social, or there could be a kind of social science. Uh, you see it among certain kinds of political radicals. This is, you know, more a later story, and then so far as the, it's, you know, more the activists and counterculturalists of the 60s who tend to reject the kind of science-oriented modes of progressivism and radicalism, but you see it among someone like a Dwight MacDonald uh, in the late 40s and, and early 1950s, arguing that the kind of scientific bent of modern thought has, you know, ruined the, ruined radicalism, too. Mm-hmm. So you see it coming from all over the place. Yeah, I thought you did a nice job with identity too, of bringing in black leaders and and feminists. So, like, you know, what if we look to black leaders, for instance, what kind of critiques do you see? Yeah, I mean, there's. It, I suggest at the beginning that this is, uh, in some ways, a more dominant theme among white thinkers uh, than it is among you know folks in other groups. Partly because, you know, some of the struggle for black Americans, for example, is to just try to get into the mainstream, right? Is to try to get access to this growing authority of science in various ways, partly just by gaining jobs in in the scientific Mm -hmm. community, partly by drawing on it as well. There's, of course, a strong undercurrent, um, you know, in in the black churches of, uh, you know, a kind of critique of secularism and a critique of scientific materialism. Mm -hmm. There's skepticism around certain kinds of policies, and you can see this coming out again today. And, uh, you know, the part of the story is that people in in the black community are not getting vaccines as often, but there's also more hesitancy there than you see elsewhere. And there's obviously a very, very long history of experimentation in medicine that's, uh, you know, very front and center in the minds of many people. Um, The abuse of evolutionary rhetoric to talk about higher and lower races is on the minds of a lot of black leaders. So that's one way in which it comes in. So, you know, there's a sense in which it is first and foremost, a kind of mainstream white story, right? I'm looking mm-hmm. at the kind of post-war establishment and its various sort of dimensions um, and suggesting, well, that you know, there's an enormous amount of this kind of criticism there as well. Now, later on, this becomes a much more complex story by the 1970s, right? Because virtually all of the critiques, like maybe McDonald and a few others, uh, before the 1960s are saying, well, science has destroyed our traditional self-understanding. By the time you get into the late 60s and 70s, you get various sorts of marginalized groups saying, well, science is actually upholding traditional views, racist views, patriarchal views, right, right, that actually need to be changed. So what's pseudoscientific is actually the conventional understanding of human behavior uh, and that's what science has sort of imprinted on our culture is something mm-hmm. old and bad that we need to get rid of. So the the critique, it's kind of flipped around in a sense, but it's still predicated on this sense that science is dictating what, how we think about ourselves. Yeah. You know, this story um, is about science, but it's also very much about the role of technology in our culture. And yeah, I think in part because... Theme. 
um, in part because people saw it, you know, technology as applied science, I, I think. Yeah, sure. But uh, there's lots of worries about technological change throughout the book. So how did mm -hmm. you see kind of technology coming out in this story? Like, where do you think that comes from when? Yeah, well, I think one of the things you th see throughout these arguments is a, you know, a kind of lumping tendency to sort of stick things together, right? So uh, it's why, you know, people jump back and forth between what we would consider scientific phenomena and technological phenomena, right? The concept yeah. of the machine is, is a metaphor, a big metaphor in the 1920s, uh, both for those who are enthusiastic about social changes and those who are, are concerned about them. But the machine is a kind of symbol for both actual machines, but also mechanistic ways of thinking about human persons, right? And so you constantly get, you know, even in the index and categories for people as machines, things like that, right? You see this yeah. style of criticism over and over again that we've been reduced to animals, mm. we've been reduced to machines. And there, you know, many of these critiques are not particularly um, systematic. Yeah. And so there's enormous amount of kind of muddling and confusion about the actual means by which science or, or technology is causing cultural change. But you do see them routinely associated with one another. Technology becomes a more prominent theme again, I think, in the 1960s with the left critique, although there, you know, it has a presence earlier on. Uh, you know, obviously the nuclear bomb is a, is looming over a lot of this conversation yeah. uh, in the late 40s and 50s. Although, uh, surprisingly often, the argument is that, well, the bomb isn't the problem. The, the, the problem is our self-understanding that leads us to use the bomb or have developed right. the bomb or not be able to handle the bomb. Uh, that the real problem is our sort of moral self-destruction. Mm -hmm. uh, so technology is, is, comes in constantly throughout the book um, and I, I don't sort of sit down and differentiate those critiques I would say all that much uh, but I do suggest in the introduction and some one of the this is one of the main features of this discourse is a constant conflation of science with technology um, yeah. in terms of how they shape our lives sometimes you'll see a critic who suggests that technology is the main vector through which yeah. a kind of mechanistic view has shaped us and you'll see that sometimes in the 20s you see it sometimes in the 70s or beyond mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. usually they're conflated in the middle decades of the 20th century like five or six years ago i taught a course on like the history of technology criticisms of technology and yeah. industry yeah. and the, i really started that course with like romantic poets actually where you mm -hmm. see a lot of this stuff yep. i mean do you do you think that this critique of science goes back to kind of older romantic traditions do you see that thread playing out i think it does i mean i think there's obviously a very important prehistory and european thought for all of these sorts of arguments uh both in the a kind of romantic vein and in a kind of harsher anti-modern sort of anti-liberal mm -hmm. vein uh moving toward the later 19th century and into the 20th i think in some ways the, the wheel is reinvented in the United mm -hmm. States. I mean, these people are not always consciously drawing on a Coleridge or something like that. Yeah. Um, but they are often defending, you know, certain kinds, you know, similar sorts of alternatives in terms of structures of cultural authority um, to some of those earlier folks. I mean, by European standards, the critiques in this country are fairly moderate you know not a right. lot of people rejecting <laughs> democracy not a lot of yeah. people rejecting industry as such mm -hmm. uh you know you start to get some of that in the 60s and 70s um 
typically they the assumption is that some new or you know some refurbished I'd say way of thinking is just going to solve the problem right if we just listen to mm -hmm. the poets or if we just listen to the novelists or if we just listen to the uh, ministers or you know that that's more or less the extent of the problem is that it, and, mm -hmm. and that's partly why it's such a, a kind of mainstream and in fact kind of almost professional discourse is is that it is the stakes are in some ways the highest for those who represent some of these other sources of authority who are you know professional humanities scholars speaking for novelists or political theorists for example you know a huge mm -hmm. presence in this conversation um, who's you know are voicing these older traditions of thinking that they believe are going to you know essentially solve the problem by sort of rehabilitating an older sense of human behavior or installing a new one later in the 20th century mm-hmm I think a really important lesson of the book is that this critique, as you've already said, it comes from both the left and the right. Absolutely. Um, so why do you think it's such a bipartisan phenomenon? Um, and I guess as a follow-up question, like, do, you, do, you, do the liberals and conservatives differ in the critiques they make, or, or, or is there a lot of similarity there? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of similarity through up through the 1960s, I would say. Um, in that it, you know the critiques remain at this very very high level of generality they're very rarely attached to specific political programs except mm -hmm. by this new right you know which has a kind of oppositional vision and a few politicians that it's rallying around like robert taft and folks like that um but even there it's it's a very very broad kind of critique and you know on the other side uh it's remarkable how many supporters of you know something like the welfare state are still extremely critical of the uh, what we would think of as some of the assumptions on which it's based yeah. that social sciences can know something about the human person uh, i mean these aren't necessarily the reasons why we ended up getting these policies and during the new deal but they are widely seen in u.s political culture as bearing some relation to the authority of the social sciences um, so there's actually remarkable similarities uh, between the arguments of, you know, folks quite far over on the right and an establishment figure like a Reinhold Niebuhr or, uh, you know, the historian Jacques Barzun in the middle of the 20th century uh, or someone quite far over to the left like Dwight MacDonald. Now, they, they tend to take on much more politically specific forums by the 60s and 70s when yeah. they're much much more closely tied to electoral politics mm -hmm. more closely tied to certain kinds of single issue social movements about the placement of nuclear facilities for example let sort mm -hmm. of get a little closer to the ground um during that period although the you know much broader versions emerge again around kind of post-structuralist thought and sort of the post uh, late 20th century critiques of modernity yeah um but so, yeah, and one of the points of the book and one of the reasons why I originally conceived of writing it was how similar the critique often ends up looking across huge swaths of terrain politically, religiously. If you think of it in its simplest form as, you know, science has shaped our culture, science has sort of ruined our self-understanding, we need to recover or replace it with X, right? Yeah. You can fill in that X with so many different things. Right, right. <laughs> I thought you did a really nice job um, dealing with this kind of mirroring of the, the right and left in, from the 70s on, too, yeah. because yeah. I think that's such a, including in our social circles, that's such a 
fraught issue. It is, yeah. I, I don't know if you saw, like, last year, I think it was last year, that Philip Murawski, the kind of historian of economic thought, had this essay where he was talking about science and technology studies and its kind of doubts about democracy and expertise and linking mm -hmm. it to kind of neoliberal conservative mm -hmm. thinking and saying, trying to show that they're kind of like twins in a way, you know, that mm -hmm. they're, they have deep interconnections. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, of course, created a lot of defensiveness within the SDS community. Of course. Um, but I thought you did a really nice kind of job showing that there are there are similarities, but it doesn't mean like they're coming from the same political place necessarily. No, no, not at all. Not that they are in some ways reducible to one another, um, but that they're fungible, right? That they can be picked up and, and used for a lot of different kinds of purposes. Yeah. Um, and that was one of the one of the main reasons I initially took up this study. Uh, I was originally planning to organize it around groups of political critics of kind of establishment liberalism, sort of welfare state liberalism, yeah. and show that basically each group in turn, as they develop over the decades, right, the new right, the new left, communitarians, right, mm -hmm. you know, and, and on and on, uh, each group has more or less picked up uh, this kind of critique of the social sciences as the basis for a kind of political organization, right? Mm -hmm. And seeing how this has circulated and been modified over and over again to all of these different purposes still remains a sort of important task of the book, I would say, is that um, showing this is a line of continuity, for example, you know, there are many others, but this is an important one I think we haven't explored as much between um, you know, someone like Reinhold Niebuhr in the middle of the 20th century and the New Left, who, you know, were ferociously critical of most things that he stood for, mm -hmm. uh, that that generation inherited a certain set of assumptions about what science was and what science was doing, that they turned to very different purposes. But it, yeah. the, the language often sounds remarkably similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also thought you did a nice job of kind of showing... Um... I mean, part of it's the new right, like the crystal types, you know, the people who start off as Democrats Irving and crystal, then, yeah, right. yeah, yeah uh, and make the switch to a kind of conservatism during the 60s yeah. and earlier. I mean, and you even have like Daniel Patrick Moynihan making a similar kind of trajectory as a Democrat, having like real doubts about the great society yeah. um, and social engineering through welfare uh, policies. Uh, but then you have the, the hippies at the same moment kind of also having real doubts about the yeah. authority of the state. So, Absolutely. Um, you know, like, Absolutely. Is, is it a coincidence that this is both happening at the same time amongst kind of different, different left, right political groups? Or do you really think there's just something broader in the air during uh, that time? No, I don't think it's entirely coincidence. I think there are a number of different factors there. One of the things I try to draw in the book, and I don't want to make make the argument too reductive, but it is, you know, frequently the case that you can find the folks making this argument have a professional investment in some alternative structure of yeah. cultural authority, right? And so there are, you know, real important factors that have to do with just professional interests here, mm -hmm. the interests of a humanities scholar, or, you know, um, not always, but, but often. And so that's one dimension is that there are a lot of folks who have you know, investments at any given time and other ways of thinking professionally. 
Yeah. I think another is that there is a kind of crisis of the American welfare state in the 1960s, right? I mean, there's a series of arguments about uh, the great society, especially as Johnson is trying to sort of expand various sorts of policies. You see it, you know, among uh, black nationalists. You see it all over the place, right? This sense that something is wrong with a society that tries to use these bureaucratic mechanisms to solve what are essentially moral problems, right? And so that's uh, you know, I think a, a central factor in the 60s and 70s. And then some of it is this sort of, just the fungibility of this kind of argument, which means it ends up almost everywhere. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you mentioned the a sort of group of folks who come to be called neoconservatives, and they yeah. have a really interesting role in a sense. I mean, when I thought about writing the book in terms of chapters by group, that actually would have been one of the hardest chapters as I started researching it, because they're in a sense so committed to scientific authority, to the social sciences. I mean, so many of them come from within those disciplines, either teach them or teach them occasionally or are trained in them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, the the main leader who doesn't, Norman Podoritz, actually virtually never says anything about science, surprisingly. Mm -hmm. And so it becomes another version of this kind of dissidence within the social science disciplines themselves in a sense of the misuse of scientific authority and the misuse of modern theories of behavior. So it's a really a, a kind of fascinating nuance there. Yeah. Um, but they also contribute some of the most powerful sorts of tropes, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, about this new class, for example. I mean, you see new class rhetoric on the new left. You see it, versions of it among the what be called, come called the paleoconservatives of the 50s. Um, but it's obviously these figures who, who sort of make the new class analysis front and center. And give, what's the, for people who don't know, what's the new class? Yeah, the new class is, you know, roughly synonymous with a kind of professional managerial class, yeah. bringing down to earth this critique of scientific authority and suggesting that these are the people who have sort of spread this ideology throughout our society. And these are the people yeah. who've you know, done it because they have a professional interest in sort right. of maintaining themselves as the kind of protectors of all, right? Mm-hmm. As the kind of instruments of this bureaucratic state, yep. uh, as the educators, as the social scientists, as you know, the various sorts of experts. And so they really bring that front and center into the conversation in a way that's mm-hmm. picked up by uh, communitarians and others. I mean, I show side by side, you know, people that we would call a communitarian or a neoconservative. I mean, again, there's a tremendous amount of uh, yeah. elision between these these positions. When Ronald Reagan was doing radio slots in the 1970s, he often picked up on this rhetoric. Yeah, so it's I mean. Um, you know, it's 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 one of those moments. I mean, when I like to teach students about the, um, the I'm forgetting their journal, public interest uh, yeah, of these the new, right. just because I feel like it's really helpful for kind of seeing how left right mm-hmm. lines get drawn. I mean, I really feel like our contemporary politics get set yeah. in this moment in a lot of ways. So yeah, that's right. I mean that kind of convergence. You know, many of these folks still continue to think of themselves as being on the left throughout mm-hmm. their lives um the convergence of their kinds of concerns or folks that you know we would want to call a communitarian like a michael novak or you know christopher lash some of these figures in the 1970s that become celebrities in a sense right they bring yeah. all of these critiques so profoundly into the mainstream into the media discourse um into the you know obviously into the new think tanks right into all of these new forums and really define the language that you see you know across both parties by the 1990s certainly in that era of bill clinton right 
Right. All the assumptions that we're now sort of starting to unpack about the crime bills in that era, and yeah. talking about that again with Biden back in office. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the dismantling of the welfare state. I mean, Absolutely. so many things, prison, prison rules, and such. Um, uh, you know, so you re- you were working on this book late enough that you were able to get a mention of COVID into I the was, conclusion. Yes, that's right. <laughs> And the introduction there. And the introduction. <laughs> uh, I was reading, rereading the conclusion today, so that's why yeah. I, I was thinking about it. Um, yeah. So yeah, how have you seen this kind of play out um, over the last year or so? I think it's... I think there's a baseline of distrust of scientific experts in the United States that bears the marks of this long tradition of argumentation about scientists having a kind of inhuman view of persons, right? Mm-hmm. Having a, a sort of fundamentally skewed and dangerous sense of who we are as yeah. human beings. I think you see that behind. You know, if we look at the sources of a kind of post-truth climate, uh, I mean, many people will just look, you know, very recently and, you know, and talk about the Trump administration and talk perhaps yeah. about the Christian right. You know, others will widen the window a little bit and look at maybe the last 50 years and talk about uh, the counterculture and talk about, you know, postmodernism for those who dislike it. Yeah. Um, but I think he, all of those movements have been shaped in a way by this deeper tradition of contending that scientists have, you know, bequeathed us this fundamentally inhuman way of thinking about human beings. Yeah. I think this... Uh, you know, clearly you can see it's, I think, clearest on the political left. You can see a very rapid sort of disillusionment with scientific thinking over the course of the 1960s and 1970s. But if you look at the beginning of the story, and I suggest this early on, you know, as of 1920, there are very, very few people who were just critical of science whole cloth in any of these kinds of sweeping ways. They might dislike Darwinism. They may have, you know, a concern here or a concern there. You know, but compare that to today when you get all of these sweeping statements about science, you know, being, you know, that we need to resist it by picking up the humanities, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, You know, these just huge generalizations about what science means at a time when I think we need to be much more specific and precise about what we're talking about. If we have concerns about vaccination, we should talk about vaccination. We shouldn't talk about science or expertise or enlightenment or modernity, right? We need to talk about specific things going on, the government telling you what to put in your body, right? That's a a very fraught process, and there's a lot to talk about there. Um, But it doesn't, we're not going to really get much of a handle on it by making these huge generalizations. Yeah. On the the Christian right, I, I remember some of the critiques of Fauci were when when it was when he was ba- basically you know people were banning church gatherings that right. there was a misunderstanding of human nature that even if there was a risk of those gatherings that that was absolutely essential to our yeah. nature as humans to, to yeah exactly yeah it was and there are those within the churches pushing back that says you know the Bible doesn't tell us we have to worship inside for example right right uh, but yeah no you see that very much I mean of course a huge strand of this whole tradition of argumentation has to do with this sense of a perceived battle between, uh, you know, a fundamentally religious people and a kind of secular state that's keeping mm. them down, right? I mean, that's a very, very strong theme in this in this uh, tradition of argumentation. And that is, of course, the theme that the Christian right has developed, uh, you know, most systematically and most thoroughly, although you do see it in other places. Um, 
but yeah, that's that's certainly coming out there, and 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 the sense that behind it, still, I think there's this this sort of background sense that somehow scientists just really don't understand people, right? Right. They they assist, yeah. they do, and and somehow they force their views on all of us through means that remain fairly nebulous. Right. Right. And of course, scientists don't think they have any purchase on public culture at all, right? They think yeah. nobody listens to them at all. Um, but this just sort of you know, really kind of habitual sense that this is a scientific culture, of course. So what is yeah. the problem with it? And let's start from there and then figure out what is wrong with the way that scientists think and how that ramifies in various particular practical realms. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to talk to you more about this kind of generalities and abstractions. I really love that part of the book and what you've said so far. So from the conclusion, you you in the conclusion, you write, in our debates, massive abstractions still abound as commentators invoke the usual broad categories, science, scientism, rationalism, the enlightenment, the humanities, humanism, religion, faith, irrationality, the West, modernity. Yet such large-scale abstractions have proven remarkably unhelpful in the controversies of our day. Mm -hmm. And I just, I think that's so true. Um, I don't want to get like overly uh, nerdy here, but I was thinking about uh, the... Uh, philosopher Wittgenstein, uh, in some of his notebooks, he talks about the craving for generality mm -hmm. that we have. Yeah. And, you know, I just was thinking, you know, th this is a big theme of the book, I think, is that when we talk about these things, we tend to talk in these very abstract terms. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, where do you think that? I mean, have you thought about where that comes from and why that's the case? I think that relates to some extent to the, the, the kind of professional location and also the sort of personal psychology of many of the people that are offering these critiques. And this is partly why it's a it's an account that's in some ways anchored on the kind of community of professional intellectuals uh, is because I'm interested in the critiques that are offered at this level of generality in, in some ways above all, also because they have very loud voices and they've yeah. uh, shaped our views in important ways. Um, but I think, you know, those of us who take up the scholarly life are generally inclined to think in these fairly broad terms, right? Yeah. And we're generally inclined, as I say in the introduction, to think that all of the stuff around us, right, all of the politics, all of the nitty-gritty of daily life in some ways reflects some kind of philosophical foundation mm -hmm. and that we could kind of get at it all together if we attacked whatever that deep root was yeah i think this is a tendency uh that i you know that is very very common among um, academics intellectuals of various kinds is to a kind of philosophical reduction of the entire world to yeah. sort of competing systems of thought which allows us to believe we have greater purchase on them than i believe we do yeah yeah i mean i one of the things i like about your work going way back is is that all the different kind of subfields of history that you pull together and um you know i think you you come in part from a kind of intellectual history background yeah it's my original I, training that's right and uh but yeah i think you 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 have it because of the view you just outlined you have you have some real questions about how intellectual historians have traditionally talked to thought about absolutely yeah i think they're some of the worst offenders in some ways <laughs> of the, uh, you know the, the, some of the leading proponents of this kind of philosophical reduction um you know and i as, on the other hand i'm certainly someone who wants to say that ideas and their makers are important in the world yeah. but i think we need to be 
very clear on how they're important mm -hmm. uh, and they're important insofar as these arguments get picked up and used for a whole bunch of different purposes you, mm -hmm. you know often perhaps usually for you know reasons and for interests that weren't theirs in the first place right i mean i'm fascinated yeah. by misunderstanding i guess i would say and that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons why these arguments at this level of generality i think can be so powerful is that they can appeal to so many different people for so many different reasons yeah. Uh, they become the source of a certain kind of consensus that is very empty in a sense in terms yeah. of having specific content but where everyone can just start by saying, oh, we live in a scientific culture. Okay, let's yeah. start, you know, let's figure out then, then what to make of that and what that looks mm -hmm. like. And, and people fill it in with all sorts of their own content. Um, you know, I would just straight up reject that. I don't yeah. think we live in a scientific culture. Um, mm -hmm. But the fact that so many people not even argue it, but just take it for granted, Yeah, is a very powerful fact about our world, because that just wasn't true, in certainly in the United States, as of even 1920, I don't believe. Mm -hmm. and they may have set a, a technical culture by then, right? They may have been thinking about electricity and that sort of thing. Uh, but even that sort of argument is, in some ways, a product of the 1920s, right? Earlier self-understandings of, you know, what is American culture had... Well, mostly been predicated on either politics. This is a you know democratic republic or or, or yeah. on Christianity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Forgive me. I'm losing. I lost my train of thought for a second. Mm, there was course. something I wanted to ask you. Mm -hmm. um, Generalities. Yeah. Um, will I get that one back? It'll come. Well, let me go to the next question I had for you sure, that sure. um and uh see if it comes back to me. I know they're related. So the you know, what's the in your view, I think you've already begun to talk about this with these kind of generalities, but what do you see as the best road forward? I mean, is it it sounds like what you're saying is that we need to if we're going to talk about vaccines, for instance, was the example used before. We should talk about vaccines because there's mm -hmm. a huge number of deep and important questions there absolutely um about authority and about science and yeah. about certainty and about racism i mean there's so many things we can go into there yeah. so is the idea that we should focus more on the particular and and avoid these kind of massive generalities i think that's usually pretty good advice in a lot mm -hmm. of different domains i think i'm i'm extremely wary of the way that language obscures content as well as reveals it yeah uh, and i think that uh you know if we talk if we're talking about just about anything and we say the term liberalism for example i mean i actually actively tried not to use that word in my first yeah. book even though all the people in it would be considered liberals more or less right. uh it, it means so many different things to so many different people that i don't think it's a very useful instrument for actually getting ideas across yeah. And so I'm generally always uh, an advocate of trying to take down that level of generality and to try to be a little more precise about what it is that we're talking about. Um, and I think, you know, it's to me that the core message of, you know, decades of scholarship on social construction and the way that social values and interests are intertwined with knowledge making and with technological innovation and that sort of thing is that they tend to be, you know, these processes tend not to sort of be big, sweeping generalities. They tend to be yeah. very local, very messy, very complex, right, very multi-sided. Uh, and then if we want to talk about vaccination, we need to talk about, 
you know, specific procedures, specific kinds of moments um, that, you know, we might want to say, uh, you know, something broad about the fact that this technology or this, uh, you know, medical advance is shaped by values, but then we really need to dig in and see, because, you know, in each case, there are different sets of interests, different sets of groupings, literally yeah. different, different categories of people uh, that are affected by that particular innovation or by that particular theory. And I think we need to take those cases uh, on their own terms. And that's, I guess, frustrating as a scholarly agenda, right? That yeah. doesn't, you know, give us this great big purchase on large questions. But I think it's really crucial in order to, yeah. to actually have real purchase on them mm-hmm. is to say, well, the climate controversy is different from the vaccination controversy, yeah. is different from any number of other things that we could, we could be talking about. Right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, vaccine hesitancy of 25% of frontline nurses and doctors or whatever the statistic is don't want to get the vaccine. That's coming from a very different place than, yeah. you know, the QAnon person online, right? Right. Um, yeah, and we need to we need to understand all of those dynamics. Yeah, I mean, as our as our role as teachers, I think that that's something we can do in the classroom too, yeah, is absolutely. try to bring bring people down to specifics as often as possible, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I remember what I wanted to ask you. I, oh, this good. kind of like skepticism about you know philosophical foundationalism or however we want to think about that. Where do you, where mm-hmm. do you think that comes from in you? Is that just part of the Andy Jewett like instinct about the world, or do you think yeah. that's something you came to? I don't know. I mean, I went through that as I actually went through many of the positions that I discuss in my book. Yeah. Um, I mean, I came out of college with many of the commitments that I'm now sort of historicizing, I'd say. Uh, maybe went back into graduate school with many of them as well. Yeah. Uh, I guess, yeah, I don't know. I think that's just probably many years of observing the world. But I think, too, that it has been one of the lessons of scholarship in U.S. history, history science, STS, the fields I tend to follow, political theory most closely, Um I have just found a sort of, uh, you know, fairly constant mismatch between the most sweeping generalizations offered in those fields, and not everyone writes like that, uh, and the kinds of questions that I think we need to be addressing in our lives. And I'm, you Mm -hmm. know, very much committed to making my scholarship speak in some way, at least through some sort of translation to our public concerns. Um, and there's a way in which this level of generality can allow us to sort of play with ideas in a way that's sort of relatively reality-free. Yeah. Um, I don't, you know, it's something I'm still trying to figure out, I would say. I, I don't believe ideas don't matter. I don't believe mm-hmm. systematic ideas don't matter. I wouldn't want to say that, but I'm much more likely to say that in conversations with other intellectual historians than I am to say that in conversations with uh, other U.S. historians, right? For right. whom I think ideas generally matter more than they uh, are given credit for. I think they matter, I guess I would argue ultimately that they matter differently. I think they matter mm-hmm. in these much more complex and, and ambiguous ways that they get taken up by specific actors in specific contexts and they get put to specific purposes. Uh, and that that's where a lot of the, the really interesting stuff happens. Yeah. That's great, man. I love that. Um, I don't like to ask people who have brand new books out, like what they're working on next, no, but what, <laughs> um, especially during a pandemic when we're all dealing yeah. with childcare and such, but what are you thinking about, man? 
yeah, well, it's been like two months since the book came out. It's an eternity. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, months before that when it was really finished. Um, actually, the, so I'm developing a, a whole bunch of new research on science and anti-racism, huh. mainly in the U.S., but hopefully with a transnational dimension as well. Um, you know, we have all this great work on how science has been used to uphold racial inequalities. Yeah. And uh, I'm interested in the other side of the story to some extent. I mean, we still need to do a lot of more of that work. But I'm really committed to the idea that science has changed the conditions of argumentation for everyone. Yeah. Um, as in this book, I'm you know arguing that scientists aren't the only ones who define public images of science. I also want to see how uh, those who are attacking these structures of uh, discrimination and so forth were mobilizing scientific resources as well. Yeah. So you know where is science in the civil, you know classic phase of the civil rights movement? Mm-hmm. So. I have a, a you know sort of big project in mind there. The, the piece I'm pulling out right now is a history of the environmental justice movement hmm. uh, as it's coming together, especially in the in the 1980s and 1990s, and looking at some of the interplay of movement activism and you know bureaucratic policy formation and some of the work that's being done in the universities and around concepts yeah. of justice and how those various streams sort of intertwined. Uh, in the environmental justice movement, because if you just say the phrase environmental justice, it it is so many different things. It's a movement. Right. It's a policy rubric. It's a concept. Um, so I'm interested in seeing how, and it also it's a place where many kinds of scientific work, and in fact other kinds of academic work, are also brought into the conversation. There's of course the the natural sciences in relation to, right. you know, environmental science in general, but also the social scientists do an enormous, you know, an important amount of work by demonstrating the kind of, you know, fundamental bias and the siting of polluting facilities and so yeah. forth, right? And giving scientific credibility to that, you know, very obvious, but ultimately anecdotal observation yeah. about where these things end up. And then the humanities and political theory as mm-hmm. well, right? And the ways in which conversations about justice, you know, this is a, originally called environmental racism. It's called environmental equity. Yeah. And then that very, you know, in a very short amount of time shifts to environmental justice. Hmm. The name of the EPA office has even changed, right? Right around hmm. 90, what is it, 1993, right after Clinton, I think, enters office. And so I'm interested in, at that level in, in sort of, you know, how is environmental justice as a rubric different from some of these other ways of describing the problem? It allows you to talk in a way that, say, environmental racism doesn't always about intergenerational justice. Yeah. You know, it allows you to talk about some of these uh, global dynamics. But justice, you know, has some weaknesses as a concept, yeah. too, in some of the same ways that equity does, and that it has mm-hmm. to be filled with specific sorts of content. Uh, and so I want to see how those sort of come out on the ground as well. I look forward to that, man. That sounds like a great project. Thanks. Uh, Andy, thanks for joining me today. Absolutely. It's great fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Peoples and things, like most things in this world, depends on the work of many people. I want to thank my brother Jake Vinsel for writing the music for the show. I want to thank my buddy Juliana Castro for designing the logos for the podcast. You can check out her work at julianacastro.co. Peoples and Things is a production of Virginia Tech Publishing and the University Libraries at Virginia Tech. Production activities are supported by the Athenaeum, a space in the library that acts as a hub for digital humanities, teaching, learning, and creation. 
Joe Fort is the Athenaeum Coordinator and Digital Humanities Specialist at VT Libraries, and he serves as producer and sound engineer for the podcast. For information about other podcasts from Virginia Tech Publishing, visit publishing.vt.edu. I also want to thank you for listening. Thanks.